This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily, and this is the week of October 10th through 14th, and we've got some Jeopardy this week to talk about. But before we get to that, Kyle, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. We had a little bit of illness in the house this week. It seems like we... I mean, I have a kid in kindergarten and a kid in preschool, so that seems inevitable. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a Petri dish. Yeah, but we're doing good. We're on... Uh, we have our fall break coming up this week. Fall break? Which, what yeah, is that? Which, yeah, it's a thing. I don't know. I hadn't encountered it until I got to my district. Um, but we get a week off in October after the first quarter. That's fun. Yeah. I mean, we go back to school earlier than everyone else in August, but we get a week off in, in October. So mm-hmm. that feels pretty good. How are you? Yeah, nice. Um, I'm doing all right. I am trying not to give everybody yet another update on my video games, uh, but it's getting more and more fantastical in Stardew Valley. Uh, it started out like, oh, I'm going to like grow some parsnips and like someday I'll buy a chicken coop. And now it's like, I've got to get the void egg from the void chicken and turn it into void mayonnaise and bring it to the goblin. So that's that's all fun. Um, it is fun. Yeah, it is fun. And uh, my daughter who watched a bunch of um, YouTube cozy game reviews over my shoulder, uh, decided to lobby for us to also get the video game Lemon Cake. Hmm, I don't know that one. Yeah, you're you're running a bakery. It's like hmm. time management and, you know, economy. You know, you've got to figure that, out how to spend your money and like... just sounds stressful. Maxim- yeah, I don't know. She's She seems to be into it. So well, good for her. Yeah. And I guess this update is is a week late, but hey, both of us managed to stay in B Rundle and Learned League. We did barely. Yes, by the skin of our teeth. If you're, if you're like, if you're like Learned League, what what is that? It's it's an online trivia league that Kyle and I are both members of. And if you're interested, uh, you can I guess hit me up on Twitter. I have referrals available. Yeah, I think I do as well. But hey, uh, Jeopardy on. Monday, October 10th, we had the contestants Allie Noodleman, a healthcare policy professional from Brooklyn, New York, Eugene Hom, an attorney from Oakland, California, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose six-day cash winnings total $162,080. That's a good ref- uh, good average. Yeah, for that's a really six good days. average. Yeah. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, A View to the Bridge... Remembering Past Lives, The Bartender's Toolbox, Critical Mass, Sporty Books, and Around the Horn. Remembering Past Lives was just about people in history. It was not about, like, reincarnation or anything of that sort. I did wonder when the category came out. Yeah. Didn't we just have a clue about Harriet Tubman or something on the... Or did we had a clue about... Andrew Jackson on the 20. Just last week, right? Yeah. Maybe? I think so. Wait. And in the Remembering Past Lives yeah. category at the $600 level, in 1849, those pursuing who, her as escaped slave Minty Ross didn't know her face might be on future U.S. currency. That's Harriet Tubman. 
Yeah. I think Chris zeroed in on woman's face on U.S. currency and mm-hmm. guessed Anthony, as in Susan B. Anthony, who's on the dollar well, was coin. On the dollar was on coin, the, yeah. the, yeah, was on a dollar, the, some, some iteration of the, of the one dollar coin. Yeah. Don't think uh, she would have passed as an escaped slave, though. No. Minty, short for Araminta, I think. Oh. Yeah. I thought the bartender's toolbox category was kind of a fun premise. It was all drinks whose names are somehow related to tools and such. Mm -hmm. Um, So screwdriver, rusty nail, that kind of thing. Monkey wrench. Yeah. I thought that was fun. Yeah. I learned a couple of them. Daily Double number one is in the remembering past lives category at the $1,000 level. Pick number 18, and Chris finds it. He's in the lead, but not by much. Uh, Allie has been has been staying close behind him, and he makes a true daily double for 6200 And he gets a clue. After a life as a political wife, she co-founded an addiction treatment center and chaired the board of directors until 2005. And Chris says, who is Ford? And then there's notable silence until Chris says, who is Betty Ford? I don't know how many... I I guess it says political wife. I remember thinking, like, the only first lady named Ford, but it doesn't say first lady. It says political wife. So Mm -hmm. the specificity there I'm okay with. Yeah. I remember I had, you know, I had flashbacks, though. Yes. (laughs) But that's because I misread the clue. So I will admit that. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris has gotten himself out to a big lead. 14,200. Eugene is at 2,000. And Allie is at 6,200. I think Ken said something like this was the highest scoring Jeopardy round of the season or something like that, which Mm, he he may have. We get the double Jeopardy categories, pen names, spineless creatures, how did they die, nationally monumental, places in movie titles, and only one consonant words. Ken's example of a one consonant word was sassy. (laughs) Now, that might not have been Ken's example. That might have been the writer's example. Might have been. Yeah. Although Ken is sassy. Mm-hmm. The $2,000 level of that category was, um, they showed a picture. Here's a gaggle of this four-lettered Hawaiian goose. And Chris got it with, uh, what is it, Nene. And I just feel like they missed an opportunity to, you know, work in a whip. Yeah. Usually the, the Jeopardy writers are, are, are pretty good on catching those opportunities, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Was, was Generation Z, were they, were they, were they born during that trend? Were they teenagers? Were they children? Like. The whip and the Nene? Yeah. How long ago was that? Was it like seven years, eight years, nine years, 10? I don't know. I truly don't remember. 10 years well, seems see. fine. Seems right. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> There's no way of knowing. If it happened after I got out of high school, it was, I don't know. It was seven years ago. Yeah. That's okay. it? Yeah. Wow. I, it seems longer ago. Mm-hmm. At the $1,600 level of places in movie titles... The clue is Leonardo DiCaprio wants to carve out some revenge against Bill the Butcher in this drama. Um, that's Gangs of New York. Something in my brain, when that response came out, said, oh, I need to watch that for class. And then I was like, I was supposed to watch it for class. <laughs> from How the institution ago? I graduated from 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So like, it's, you- I mean, maybe I'll get around to it at some point, but like I can cross that one off the like overdue assignments list. And, like just right. let it go on by. <laughs> I think I think the statute of limitations has passed on that one. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell we were uh, gifted children. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. We still remember yep. the assignments we didn't do. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in the pen names category at the $2,000 level. And Chris finds this one at the fourth pick. He's out to a huge lead at this point and wagers 5000 Gets the clue, after moving from Russia to the U.S. in the 1920s, Alyssa Rosenbaum adopted this pen name with the same initials. And he gets it correct. It's Ayn Rand. Yup. We've talked enough about Ayn Rand on this podcast. Yes. Uh, and Daily Double number three is in the How Did They Die category at the $1,200 level. Chris also finds this one. He is good at finding them. He wages mm-hmm. another 5,000 and gets a clue. His death in Vienna in 1791 has been attributed to rheumatic fever, strep throat, kidney failure, and poisoning, among other things. And he puzzled it out and got it correct with who is Mozart. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Chris is in a lock position with $44,600. Eugene has $1,600. Allie has $3,800. Uh, so it's double locked. And uh, we get the final Jeopardy category brand names and the clue, a neighbor's charcoal drawing of Ann Turner Cook at age four or five months won a 1928 contest to appear in ads for this brand. Eugene tried what is Morton's, uh, I think thinking of the salt company. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a pretty good guess. Yeah. Honestly, but it's not correct. He wagered 414, which drops him down to 1186. Allie got it correct, though, with what is Gerber. Um, So, yeah, the Gerber baby. She wagered 51. And Chris had it correct as well. And he wagered $15,221, giving him a total of 59821 and his seventh win. Yes. Uh, So on Tuesday, we get the contestants Mike Elliott, a meat cutter, originally from Derry, New Hampshire. What a good job title. Yeah. Uh, Marsha Free, an executive assistant to the principal from Duluth, Georgia, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Motion City, New Jersey, whose seven-day cash winnings total now $221,901. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, classic sitcoms by episode title, Polish history, The Weight of the World, W-A-I-T, subtitled nonfiction, where in the house and it's just a geometric figure of speech my particular favorite from that category was the 600 dollars level on get smart the agents of control use this anti-bugging device chris got it with the cone of silence i like get smart i'm not sure i have ever seen the show is i mean it has it is aged it's very much like dated for its time i watched it when i was a kid and i enjoyed it and i love the Steve Carell and Hathaway movie mm. that, the, the, like, the, that they made, uh, what, yeah. 10, 12 years ago, however long ago it was. Mm-hmm. It was very good. Oh, my gosh. I'm not sure that I knew that that is that where Cone of Silence comes from. I've heard the I've heard I've heard it as an idiom before, but I didn't. I mean, they made it they made it into a joke if it was yeah. a thing before. Yeah. Um. I was a big fan of Mike's response in the at the $1,000 level of where in the house. Uh, the clue was, it's the room where Peter Pan visits the darling children. Mike rang in and said, what is the bedroom? And Ken said, more specifically, and Mike sort of looked blank for a second. He said, what is the darling children's bedroom? Darling is the, the last name of the family. And then got it and said the nursery right as he was running out of time. Yeah. It was uh, great to see him work through it. And like, clearly, like, 
the darling children's but like that's he is producing like a lot of extra information that, there that beyond. Is, yeah that's got to be correct it is it is equally specific yeah like <laughs> arguably more specific yeah it's not if he, if he just said like i don't know the room their room yeah like that wouldn't be right but he like yeah i i, I don't think they he should have needed to produce the term nursery yeah but I think I think if he'd stuck with Darling Children's Bedroom, like, you know, it would have had to um, maybe go to the judges. Yeah, to be accepted yeah. or not, yeah. I also took note of the $600 level of the weight of the world, going from Dis- Disney-related clue to Disney-related clue. The website Thrill Data tracks theme park wait times like 110 minutes for Radiator Springs Racers at this Disneyland park, which is um, California Adventure. Mike got that one as well. 110 minutes. Yeah, mm, yeah. I went on a bit of a deep dive into like wait times, like posted wait times and actual wait times, and like how to game the wait times and like all of that in advance of my my Disney World trip. So <laughs> I've spent a lot of time on the Thrill Data website along with a bunch of other similar ones. Okay. Um, yeah. When it comes around, I'll ask you for help. Yeah, uh, happy to give it. I will. I will I will go way more in depth than anyone is prepared for unless you've heard my deep dives and then then you'll kind of know what you're getting into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, daily double number one is in the where in the house category at the six hundred dollar level and Chris finds this one as usual and wagers forty eight hundred. Uh, it's the eighteenth pick. He gets the clue in twenty twenty the socially conscious. Houston Association of Realtors dropped this two-word term for where the head of the house sleeps. And he got it correct. It is the master bedroom. Um, Ken notes that primary bedroom is preferred. It's a good change. You know, it's fine. The only commentary I've heard about this from activists of color is this is small potatoes and we'd like people to focus on things that matter more than what we call different rooms. You know, but like, sure. Yeah, like, I guess, it, you know, it's not bad. It's, it's just, just not enough. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is at 12,000. Marsh is at negative 400. Mike is at 4,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, science grab bag, baby names, top 25 of 1922. Old words. It's a big place with big in quotation marks. The temples in Jerusalem and Broadway rocks. I assume you did well in the temples category. Yes, I knew all of these. Good. Makes yeah. Trust you. <laughs> the four hundred dollar level asked about the remaining section of the second temple complex, which stands as a place of prayer and remembrance today. And Chris responded, "What is the Wailing Wall?" Uh, which is accepted. I just said master bedroom versus primary bedroom is small potatoes. Um, but I have he- I have heard um. Some folks say, you know, that Western wall is preferred. Interesting. Yeah. It may be just personal preference of, of the, you know, of the individuals I've heard say that. I'm not seeing anything, you know, like, I'm not seeing sort of major organizations discouraging calling it the Wailing Wall. I'll just keep I mean, keep that in mind anyway. Yeah. Nobody attempted the $1,200. The first temple was built around 950 BC and was destroyed by an invading army of this empire in 586 BC, the Babylonians, Babylonian Empire. The first temple is built by King Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians. There's the Babylonian exile. And then after the return from exile, the second temple is built 
um, which stands until, oh gosh, 60-something AD? Around 70, yeah. Yeah, 70. Yeah, I think I thought of 60-something because that's when a lot of um, uh, early Christian texts uh, that are in the that are in the New Testament were written in the 60s immediately before the destruction of the Second Temple. Um, and that's kind of like a, a landmark in religious history for Jews, but also for the for the early Christian church as they sort of figured out their identity vis-a-vis Judaism. But that's probably <laughs> probably enough for me about temples for oh. now. <laughs> All right. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the science grab bag category at the $1,600 level. Chris finds it. Mike has been keeping up with him. He's not too far ahead, and he bets 11000 which I think is almost everything he has. And he gets the clue... Ceres and Pallas are found between the orbits of these two planets. And he takes a bit of time. Well, actually, he takes a bit of time with most of his responses. Um, mm. But he gets it correct with what are Mars and Jupiter. It's in the asteroid belt. Yep. And uh, Mike is the one who finds Daily Double 3 at the 17th pick. Is it the $2,000 level of old words? So he's at 11600 with Chris way in the lead with 29,800 and Mike makes it a true daily double which yeah. whew, that yes. is that is such a great move Do it. uh terrifying Do it. but great move mm-hmm. um he gets the clue meaning to consecrate or make holy it was around for nearly a millennium before it appeared in the Gettysburg address and he gets it correct it is hallow so he also jumps up still in second place but he makes a game of it yeah. And, uh, so going into final, it's finally not a runaway. Chris is at 37,400, which is huge, but Mike is at 26,800, and Marsha's on the board at 1,600. We have the final Jeopardy category, Famous Ships, and the clue, its wreck was discovered in 1989, 48 years after it had been sunk, and 91 years after the man it was named for had died. Marsha wrote, what is the Andrea Doria? And that is incorrect, but she wagered nothing. Mike also wrote, what is the Andrea Doria? Which we know is incorrect. And he wagered 18,200. So he drops down to 8,600. And Chris got it correct with what is Bismarck. Mm -hmm. And he made a cover bet of (laughs) 16,200. Yeah. So he wins day eight with Mm -hmm. $53,601. When we were coming to him, I mean, I, I wanted, we like to see a streak continue, but I was like, if they all miss this, then it can be a deep dive about shipwrecks you should know, Yeah, which would be a great deep dive. But yeah. we always, we always do a, a clue that nobody got correct. So why did you get gonna, it, Chris? I'm going to have to save that one for later. I guess. But anyway, yeah, he wins day eight in convincing fashion. And Mike, what you know, had played a great game. Great game, Mike. I was... Thinking to myself that uh, the introduction of the second chance tournament, you know, who knows how long it'll be repeated, but as long as it's a possibility, right? Like there is now like sort of some consolation to going up against like an absolute buzzsaw player Mm -hmm. because everyone they beat, I think, has like a little bit of an edge as Jeopardy is looking at potential candidates for a second chance tournament mike put up a great performance i think you know if they do it again they should they should look at that one for sure 
So on Wednesday, October 12, we have the contestants Fernando Villafuerte, a graduate student from Pasadena, California, Elizabeth Meisenzahl, a student from Lima, New York, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, who has at this point won $275,502. That's an even better average than he was at (laughs) before. Yeah. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the 17th century, hair, they make that, waist up, neck down, words that should rhyme, and Edina Menzel acts and sings. Uh, It's a set of video clues from Edina Menzel about, uh, with clues about some of the roles she has played. I like the words that should rhyme, just because it's always fun to, I don't know, go through those, think about the words that are spelled almost exactly the same and sound different mm-hmm. i like to have fun with my kids with those but they're not old enough to like get the wordplay they're just like mm-hmm. you're saying it wrong i'm like yeah i know mm-hmm. that's the joke like why are you saying it wrong like never mind you'll think it's hilarious when you're older <laughs> first they have to be able to spell <laughs> i know i know i can't i'm so impatient i can't wait for them to be able to just you know read and do things on their own mm-hmm. Alas. yeah it's pretty great not gonna lie yeah i bet Elizabeth got three of the five Edina Menzel clues. Yeah. Yeah. She seems to know her her Broadway. Yes. In the they make that category at the $600 level. Be Delaware about styrofoam brand XPS insulation. Fernando guessed what's Dow, but uh, Chris got it with DuPont, mm-hmm. which Ken says he, DuPont's in Delaware. Yes. Um, I Honestly, I don't know why that's a trivia thing. But if, if you were not aware that DuPont, the like far-reaching industrial manufacturer company, is like based in Delaware, I guess that's a thing you're supposed to know. Because it's stuck in my brain, and I was like, I don't know why I know this. I don't know why this matters. I don't care about this at all, but I know that DuPont is associated with Delaware. Yeah, I, I also had that in my brain. Although also, like, isn't Delaware, like sort of noted for its like tax policy being especially favorable to corporations so like it is you know you kind of want to put your headquarters there right um yeah which leads me to like wonder why is it that why I dupont, dupont specifically right? like yeah. if it's so favorable to corporations why is that the one that yeah. is like oh but you got to know that one yeah I don't, know. I don't know maybe i yeah. never will it's a mystery Oh, Daily Double number one was the first pick in the round, and it was in the 17th century at the $800 level. Chris found it. Um, he bet a 1000 and got the clue. In 1642, this explorer made landfall at the Australian island now named for him. And he got it correct with who is Tasman. Mm-hmm. His name is Abel Tasman. Abel Tasman. That's right. That. Yes, I did. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Fernando and Elizabeth had a rough go of it. They started out dropping into the red. Chris was fine. He's at 6,000. Elizabeth got herself up to 1,000, and Fernando was just at negative 200. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, birth of an artist, movie stuff, step up to the plate, quick novels, six-syllable words, and going places with G-O in quotation marks. I don't see a theme to quick novels. Is it novels with short titles? Like, there's no speediness in most of the titles. I mean, The Kite Runner. I I think it's more just the clues are shorter. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's that. I mean, you make a good point. It's not particularly well themed. Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't have to be. I just don't understand why it says quick novels. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. But hey, at the $2,000 level, uh, Celeste Ng burned up the bestseller lists with this, her second novel. That's Little Fires Everywhere, which is a great novel. Loved that one. And didn't we talk just recently? Maybe not. Maybe this was a conversation I had elsewhere. The $2,000 level of birth of an artist. Mm, we did. Oh, did we? Okay, yeah. Um, his father, a sculptor, and his mother, a painter. He first became mobile mob- <laughs> on July 22, 1898 in Pennsylvania. Calder. Alexander inventor. Calder. Of, yes, Alexander Calder. Art plus mobile. Yes. It's always going to be Calder. It's just Calder. You don't have to... You don't have to learn any other names. I'm sure there were artists who were very good who have done mobiles also and deserve recognition. But as far as Jeopardy is concerned, there is only one. Yeah. Yeah, we have talked about that. I think more mm-hmm. than once. Yeah. Calder's the name. Uh, and we did in movie stuff at the $1,200 level. Uh, we didn't get it on October 3rd, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. But on October 12th, we did get uh, a Mean Girls reference. Regina George says, Gretchen, stop trying to make this happen. It's not going to happen. Chris got it with fetch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Best best for trivia purposes, just to memorize the entire <laughs> the entire script of Mean Girls. Just, just memorize the whole thing word for word. And yeah, it's important. It's important stuff. Good idea. Good idea. For trivia and for life. For life um, <laughs> Daily Double number two is in that birth of an artist category at the $1,600 level. And Chris finds it at the seventh pick. Um, He's out to a pretty good lead and wagers 2,800. And his clue is she was born in what's now part of Pittsburgh in 1844, but Paris would eventually be home. And he takes his time with it, but gets it with uh, who is Cassatt. Yeah. Mary. Yeah. Mary Cassatt. And daily double number three is in the step up to the plate category at the $1,600 level, pick number 13. And Chris also finds this one. And he wagers 4000 He's way ahead and gets the clue. Mm-hmm. The first fossils belonging to this dinosaur with bony plates in its back were discovered in the 1870s. And he gets it correct with what is a stegosaurus. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Chris has a lock again with 29600 Elizabeth is at 8,600. I liked watching her play. She found some like little pockets of, you know, stuff that she, you know, was like kind of her, her wheelhouse. Fernando's at 5,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, 20th century leaders. And the clue in a September 3rd, 1939 speech, he said, everything that I have worked for has crashed into ruins. Fernando got it correct with who is Neville Chamberlain. He wagered 615. Brings him up to 5615. I wonder what the significance of 615 is for him. June 15th. June 15th 15th might be a birthday or something, an anniversary. Um, Elizabeth got it correct as well and wagered 1401, giving her a nice round $10,001. She was looking to uh, cover an all in from Fernando. So, you know, good wagering there. And Chris got it correct as well with $8,221, giving him $37,821 and his ninth win. And on Thursday, we have the contestants Andrew Jiang, an options trader from Brooklyn, New York, Zach Russell, a contracting officer from Dayton, Ohio, and Chris Panulo, 
a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose nine-day total is now $313,323. That's a a pleasing number. Yeah. Just to look at. Yeah, 313-323. I like it. Yeah. I guess he has to stop winning at this game. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We have the Jeopardy round categories, Weird Science, not the movie. That's their sport. Looking sharp. Hodge pre-pod. <laughs> They're just messing with you. The rest, as they say, and is history. You know, I have to I have to think it's not personal, but it feels personal. It does it does seem personal, doesn't it? It mm, mm. It was cool that in the that's their sport category, uh it was all women athletes without mm. without being a specifically like woman athlete category. Yes. Right. Yep. I actually, I didn't know all of the athletes and some of the names are kind of ambiguous. So I didn't pick up on it with confidence. Mm. But yeah, no, that's cool. I I now see what you did there, Jeopardy writers. Yeah. And the $1,000 level of is history. The, The job of emperor of this country was long dominated by the Amhara, who also gave their name to a major language there. And Chris got it correct with, what is Ethiopia? Again, if you're going to be on Jeopardy, just just spend a study day. Study Ethiopia. Just study Ethiopia. You know. Why? I don't know. Somebody or everybody on the staff loves Ethiopia questions. Uh-huh. It's an interesting place. Like, it's not, there's, I'm not saying, you know, I don't know why you'd study Ethiopia. It's very interesting. It has a real, like, storied and cool history. Mm-hmm. They just love bringing it up. Yeah. The food is great, also. <laughs> All right, yeah. I, I miss leave, living near Ethiopian restaurants. Uh, we have a couple uh, little blocks away. Man, Aurora, I'll tell you what. Aurora, Colorado. Wonderful diversity. Mm. Amazing. I've had some some Amharic-speaking uh, students in my classes, and I'm like, I have no idea how to work my, <laughs> like, how to work my language knowledge around to you, uh, other than, you know, doing the the basics of how you teach English language learners in general. But like they would like write some of their like write some of their language down and I'm like, I am utterly fascinated by this. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. We had some struggles in the the rest as they say category at the four hundred dollar level. An old saying goes, guests like fish begin to do this. How you waited seventy two hours is beyond us. Andrew tried what's rot. Zach tried what is stink. Ken asked him to be more specific. He said, smell bad. Um, (laughs) Smell after three days. Guests like fish begin to smell after three days or stink. I don't know. I've heard it as stink. Um, So that they missed that one. And then the thousand dollar level travelers well know the rest of the rhyming phrase that begins east or west. Zach tried what is never the twain shall meet. Mm -hmm. That's a different idiom altogether east or west home is best apparently is the saying i didn't know that one me neither i figured rhyming phrase so i was like it's probably something is best right like but like i think that if i'd had to venture a guess it would have been like the road is best right like yeah like like if it's like this you know this uh this traveler is saying right right I think I would have guessed that it was something saying like, you know, no matter where you're, where you are, like, it's good to be traveling rather than the opposite, which is mm-hmm. what the phrase actually is. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in weird science at the $800 level. 
and Chris finds it at the fifth pick. So he makes it a true daily double with 1400 and gets the clue, some scientists think Uranus's atmosphere may compress carbon atoms into these, putting the ice in ice giant. And he gets it correct with diamonds. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is at 8600, Zach is at 2400, Andrew's at 3400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, where on earth, I got the part, Tudor times, the automotive world, after school, all of the responses will come shortly after the word school in the dictionary, and ponytails. No My Little Pony, though. No, they were all literary ponies. Is Black Beauty a pony? I'm pretty sure Black Beauty is a horse. I have no idea. I have read that book probably 30 times. Whatever you but tell me, I I'm don't gonna believe. Black Beauty is a horse. There are ponies in it, but the protagonist is a horse. Although uh, Wikipedia notes that Black Beauty is seen as the forerunner of the pony book, a genre in children's literature of stories featuring children, teenagers, ponies, and horses, and the learning of equestrian skills. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, another contestants uh, watch Doctor Who. Yeah. $1,200 level if I got the part. After a groundbreaking choice to cast her on Doctor Who, she said the gender question is now going away. That's Jodie Whittaker. Yeah. Also super good in... Broadchurch? Broadchurch. Broadchurch? Yeah, Broadchurch. Yeah. Super good in Broadchurch. I couldn't remember her name. I recognized her face, but I just couldn't pull her name. I'm sure she has some nuance in her gender thoughts, but like... Whenever I see that kind of quote, I'm like, oh, great. Gender is resolved. Now. It's fixed. Yeah. It's fixed. The end. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure she does. But, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, she's taking a stand and making a statement. Yeah. We had the pony category, but then we had a question about the uh, a car model called the pony also at the $800 level of the automotive world. And it took until Chris guessed it. He was the third guest to get the Korean car maker who made that. It was Hyundai. Andrew had tried Kia and Zach had tried Nissan. But I feel like I'm seeing, maybe I'm just looking for it more, um, seeing kind of weird little connections between categories like that. There's a pony mm. category and then a question about a car model called a pony in a different category. Yeah. 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 Uh, Daily Double number two is in Tudor Times at the $1,600 level. Chris finds this one at pick number four, and he wagers 5,000. And the clue is, alas, my love, it's probably not true that Henry VIII wrote this song, which actually dates from later in the Tudor era. And uh, Chris guesses what's Oh My Darling Clementine, uh, <laughs> which gets a chuckle. And Ken says, no, that's from later. That would be Greensleeves. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that supposedly Henry VIII wrote it. I know that the story is it's about um, the beheading of Anne Boleyn. Yeah. I'd never heard that that it was Henry VIII who wrote it. I think I had heard that. It sounded familiar. And Daily Double number three is in that ponytails category we were just talking about. It's at the $1,200 level. And Chris finds this one as well at the 19th pick. And he wagers 4800 and gets the clue Molly, who misses wearing ribbons in her mane and eating sugar cubes, represents the petite bourgeo bourgeoisie in this novel. And he gets it correct. It is Animal Farm. My brain had gone fully off on like 
horse girl books <laughs> at this point in this category and like animal farm was like the furthest thing from my mind and mm. I-, I i did not work myself around to it in time i loved animal farm when yeah i read it i was like i read it it was a teenager and i was like oh this is the mm. most clever thing in the whole world so clever yes i wonder i wonder if it if i read it now if i would feel like ah, oh, this is a bit heavy-handed or, or if i would still think it's well done yeah Anyway, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Chris again has a lot game. Not by much though. This is a this is a much closer one. He's at twenty thousand four hundred, and Zach is at ten thousand. Andrew is mm-hmm. at fifty four hundred, and we get the final Jeopardy category: documentaries. And the clue in this nineteen seventy film: Max Yosker says, "I'm a farmer. I don't know how to speak to twenty people, let alone a crowd like this." Andrew did not offer a guess and wagered fifty four hundred, so he drops to zero. Zach wrote What is Woodstock and made a cover bet of 801. And that is correct, by the way. Mm-hmm. Woodstock. Uh, and Chris also got it correct with What is Woodstock, but he wagered nothing. Mm-hmm. Which I don't blame him. You don't have, you have basically no wiggle room and it's, you might as well not try to do any math in that position anyway. Yeah. So he wins game number 10. And on Friday, we have the contestants Marianne Dos Santos, an intermediate French and religion teacher from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, Rhiannon Thomas, a hospitality worker from Downey, California, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose 10-day cash winnings at this point total $333,723. And we've got a themed Jeopardy round board. Uh, The categories are The Body Human. All ears, stories with heart, two eyes, uh, that's I in quotation marks, each correct response will have exactly two letter eyes as the only vowels in the response. Poker hands and that movie's got legs. All ears was um, sound clues, like they, they would play a sound and you had to identify it. Yeah, which I wonder, I, I don't really know off the top of my head if they've ever had like hearing impaired or deaf contestants mm. on Jeopardy. I feel yeah. like that I, I, I feel like they would not exclude someone for that reason. From competing. from competing. Yeah. I wonder if this is, you know, entirely hypothetical speculation. I wonder if some you know, the contestant who was drawn for that day was hearing impaired, if they would have had to change that category or like have a contingency you know yeah i wonder they've had visually impaired contestants yeah. including um i'm trying to remember his name but eddie, there was one guy who was like phenomenally successful yeah eddie um eddie timinus timonis timinus 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 was it but yeah eddie was phenomenally successful i'm trying to remember what his accommodations were precisely mm-hmm. i mean it it, se- it would seem unfair to have you know identify this painting right right, as as a as a clue as yeah (laughs) (laughs) um without without any kind of supporting you know verbiage be like sorry you couldn't identify it yeah oh i just found it there were a few changes made to accommodate him the first was that he received a card with the category names printed in braille before each round and a braille keyboard to type out his name on the podium's computer and his response and wager for final jeopardy there were also no video-based clues during his appearances so, so I would, I think, I think you're probably right that 
the the comparable accommodations for for a deaf or hard of hearing contestant would be not to have audio based clues where you know where a sound plays or a, or a piece of music or whatever and you have to identify it based on that yeah but i, I not to like super hang on to this but since this whole board was themed together oh yeah would they'd they chuck have to the whole board would they chuck the whole game and yeah do, and go with the like the sixth game that didn't get picked from their pool yeah mm. or you know or have the standards people yeah uh have the standards people kind of re reassign games to days or something i don't yeah. know it's an interesting thought experiment but has no bearing on the actual way that things happened yeah I was really expecting Edgar Allan Poe in Stories with Heart, but... They didn't take the low-hanging fruit. (laughs) No. Um, Also, it was not about... I mean, I guess some of them have heart in it, but it wasn't about, like, hearts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was about stories that tug on the heartstrings, I guess, or that have, I guess, the word heart in the title in a couple in one one instance, right? Based on a true story, Paper Hearts tells of the bond and resilience of teens Latka and Fania while in this concentration camp. I would say that probably still tugs at your heartstrings. That's probably a heartstrings thing yeah but i was i was like telltale heart come on let's go no it's mitch album and nicholas sparks whatever (laughs) uh chris ran the poker hands category indeed he did and he started there Mm -hmm. on the thousand dollar level so so did i though Mm -hmm. you know because i'm also super good at poker (laughs) congratulations thanks (laughs) you're welcome yeah i i did not know a lot of these terms I figured out the Dolly Parton one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the one about the New York, the theatrical New York City street. The one I, you live on? Uh, yeah. The, yes. <laughs> I don't really have more to add to that other than I wish that my knowledge of the names of poker hands would result in me winning money at poker. Mm, yeah, those uh, are different things. Alas, yeah, that that skill does not relate. Sadly. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the two eyes category at the $1,000 level. Rhiannon finds it at pick number 18. Chris has just taken off to a massive lead, and uh, she only wagers 400 I mean, I realize he's way out there already, but I would wager 1000 Yeah. Just even if you don't, you know, because at least that's what she got. Anyway, it uh, gets the clue Fats. Waxes and oils are classified as these, and she gets it correct with what are lipids. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is at 10,800, Rhiannon's at 1,200, and Marianne is at 2,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, island countries, nine-letter words, avant-garde art, potpourri with P in quotation marks, the seventh century, and TV as of late. I feel like we recently talked about what we do in the shadows, the four hundred dollar level. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you did because I think I didn't know it then, and I didn't know it this time either. Oh. But I, I should clearly know it. I think you were. I think you were recommending it to me. Yeah, I had just just started watching it over the summer. Um, yeah, it's it's very funny. It's like not you know not at all like I don't know family friendly or like <laughs> work appropriate, but it is it is extremely funny. Yeah. Uh, it does look great. And do you watch Abbott Elementary? 
I don't watch Abbott Elementary. Should I watch it? I think that you would enjoy it very much. I, okay. I also strongly suggest that for everyone, especially people who, uh, not that it's the same humor, but it has a, a somewhat similar kind of uh, approach as like Modern Family, Parks and Rec, that kind of mm-hmm. setup. So Yeah. Just Googled what we do in the shadows and then Abbott Elementary and both of them were listed as mockumentaries. And I was like, well, that's weird. And I was like, oh, wait, I guess that is kind of... That is the style. The yeah. style, yeah. When you, when you have characters as talking heads, yeah. Yep. I get. I didn't even real. It didn't even cross my mind that what we do in the shadows is also set up like that. But yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it makes for great memes. It does. Also, a lot of GIF potential in the like the mockumentary style sitcom, which probably isn't the reason that people are making them that way right now but you know it helps yeah Yeah. all right um daily double number two is in island countries at the two thousand dollar level chris finds it at the fifth pick and is out to a huge lead at this point and wagers three thousand and his clue is the sinhalese people make up about three quarters of its population and he gets it correct with sri lanka and the third daily double is in the 7th century, it's the next pick. Back to back. Back to back. It's at the $1,600 level. So, of course, Chris finds this one also. He is still out to a massive lead, and he still doesn't risk much. He only wagers 1800 Gets the clue. 664's Synod of Whitby in England standardized the calculation of this holy day based on a lunar calendar. And he gets it correct with what is Easter. I've looked at information about how the date of Easter is calculated, and I have not been able to retain it. It's <laughs> it's complicated and weird. It is one of the great mysteries of faith. Yeah. <laughs> there are some things that are not for us to comprehend. <laughs> how, how Easter <laughs> how lands. They, how they choose which date Easter is, <laughs> is one of those. <laughs> it's a spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Chris is at 35,200, Rhiannon is at 5,200, Marianne's at 3,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Authors. And the clue is, featuring a statue of a man escaping his grave, his tomb in Amiens contrasts with the title of his 1864 adventure novel. This was a triple stumper, and I did not figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marianne tried Who is Dumas? Thinking of the Count of Monte Cristo, I would assume, yeah, right? Yes. Yeah, which you know has you know a man escaping his grave, but that that doesn't contrast so much as it matches, right. you know. But anyway, Marianne's wagered three thousand, uh, which drops her down to two hundred. Rhiannon tried Who is Lovecraft, which you know that's a fine guess. Uh, she wagered five thousand, that drops her down to two hundred as well. I think it's because she started with more money. Um, she and Marianne are finished tied, uh, but Rhiannon will finish in second place and Marianne in third. And Chris also tried Who is Dumas and wagered 12,221, dropping him down to 22,979. Jules Verne is who they were looking for. Yeah. Here. So journey to the center of the earth. This yeah. man is journeying out of the earth. That feel that 
I I mean, it I get. It seems I see, like a stretch. Yeah, I see that indeed they are contrasting. The the imagery of rising from a grave does not put me on the path of Jules Verne. Yeah, and like rising from the grave is different from like coming from like the like like the earth center, right? Like yeah. this you <laughs> you the the grave. Yeah, I don't know. Grave is it's it's not near the center. It's still no. you're still Rains right up away. there close to the surface. <laughs> yep. But okay, sure, fine. At least it was a lock game, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's the week, and this is Chris's eleventh win, and we won't see him back on Monday because we are heading into the second chance tournament, which I am so excited to watch. Yes. Oh, this so is gonna be so fun. Excited. It's it is something truly new something yes. truly new with jeopardy that is is that's not something we really see much mm-hmm. plus we manifested it that's right i don't us, i don't believe in manifesting <laughs> for clarity there is no such thing as manifesting everything anything um what if you- although like the jeopardy production staff exists in the world and you know monitors like public conversation about jeopardy and so i feel like while we didn't manifest anything per se i feel like the jeopardy community did sort of float this idea enough times <laughs> that you know we may have we may have like eventually inspired them to be like you know what sure <laughs> let's try it <laughs> yes give this small very small and very vocal segment of the people what they want <laughs> Do you have any? Do you have? Do you have picks or predictions for for the second chance tournament? I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. No, because they, like it's it's so hard because we did not get more than one right showing for any of them, and it's like it, yeah, we we don't we don't have a lot to go on other than that one game, you know. Mm-hmm. And that to me is like I yeah. don't know. I'm I'm bad at predicting things anyway and making that kind of stuff, so I don't. I don't do it very much. <laughs> yeah. What what do you what about you? You have thoughts? Um I'm not sure I have like confident picks, but Jessica Stevens is one of the ones who kind of inspired the whole thing. Yeah, I she was a name that came to mind. Yeah, sure. the third player on stage with Jonathan Fisher and Madame Odio and like Jessica also outplayed Matamodio, but John Jonathan outplayed him like even more and got the win. Right. And so, like, she immediately came to mind for me as one to watch. But they're all solid players. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we have, and like you said, we had we have a pretty small sample size on each of them. So, you know, it's hard to hard to say. Um, yeah. But I'm very but excited to see it. Oh, it's going to be great. Uh, so this is the moment in the middle of the episode where we take a break and remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. We've got a, a little bit of content on there, just, just a just a just a wee bit of content. A smattering. Yeah, <laughs> we try to put our quiz questions up every week after we record, um, before the episode goes live, uh, so that Patreon supporters get a look at those, um, and it helps us to offset offset the costs of making this podcast so that, you know, we can keep doing it. So if you have a few bucks a month to help us keep doing what we do, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. It's patreon.com slash potent And of course, we feel bad asking for money without acknowledging that, you know, there are other more important things in the world. 
that should probably be a higher priority than our podcast. So hopefully you are doing some of that. Some of our favorites are in the show notes. Um, one that we've been particularly highlighting these days is abortion funds, abortionfunds.org. So, but we're at patreon.com slash potent if you want to check us out over there. So Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? Yeah. Okay. Um, have you already talked about the Temple of Jerusalem? Like, I feel like that has that already been a deep dive? Anyway, uh, that's my has, guess. It, it's a great guess, and I decided not to do it, but it would be very much in my wheelhouse, wouldn't it? Yeah. Someday, okay. I'll, someday I'll do it. I felt like I needed to, I just needed to, you know, just, I, I would be, you know, smacking my head if I didn't guess it. Uh, are you yeah. telling us about Hershey? No, I'm not. Um, are you talking about the Golden Horn? I can. I did seriously consider the Golden Horn because Istanbul is one of the first places that I traveled internationally, like, you know, without a grown-up taking me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, right after my college graduation, I did um, a couple different places in Greece and Istanbul. And so the Golden Horn, I really thought about. Um, but then I ended up going a different direction. So... It was Thursday's game, the Jeopardy round, the looking sharp category at the $800 level. The clue was it's the sharp object in Aesop's Tale of Androcles, and the correct response was a thorn. Um, but I thought, hey, Aesop and Aesop's fables, that that's also kind of, I keep heading toward these kind of literary-ish categories. Yeah, it's a different kind. Yeah, I thought I um, I would do Aesop and Aesop's fables and so you're gonna uh, talk about all of them yes all of them one at a time <laughs> just like it's just like the newberry award deep dive <laughs> that that infinite episode we did that one time <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about you know the figure of aesop what we don't know about him and you know what we you know how he's been characterized and you know uh aesop as a figure um and a little bit about the fables. I am not getting in much, much like the Arthuriana deep dive I did a while back. I am not getting into really much of any of the actual content of the fables, mm -hmm. especially as we get into like the fables. Like it's, it was hard to figure out how to structure this. And I kind of bounced around a little bit. It was like, you know, are we going to do like, you know, on stage, on screen, in literature, in visual arts, or are we going to go like, by region? Or are we going to do strictly chronological? Um, so it got it. Honestly, it got a little jumbled up. And it will be in the order that I decided to put it into my notes. So I apologize. Sure. But hey, we're gonna learn some things. Um, so First of all, how do we pronounce his name? Either Aesop or Aesop are, are considered correct. Although, when I looked at the Greek, the first two letters were alpha iota, which in Greek is, I've learned is pronounced I, so like Aesop, I would think. Hmm. Um, but anyway, Aesop or Aesop are both accepted pronunciations in English. Um, and it is honestly unclear whether he was an actual living historical figure. Mentions of him start in the historical record literally hundreds of years after his purported life, and the mentions of him seem to conflict with each other to some extent, and so it is not a sure thing that he was a historical figure. It may be that he's, you know, legendary. 
Scattered details of his life can be found in ancient sources, um, including the works of Aristotle, Herodotus, and Plutarch. The earliest Greek sources, um, including Aristotle, indicate that he was born around 620 BCE in the Greek colony of Mesembria. A number of later writers from the Roman imperial period say that he was born in Phrygia. Uh, the third century poet Callimachus called him Aesop of Sardis. And the later writer Maximus of Tyre called him the Sage of Lydia. Um, so He got around. Who knows, really? <laughs> um uh, Aristotle and Herodotus report that Aesop was a slave in Samos and that his masters were first a man named Xanthus and then a man named Iadmon, that he was eventually freed and that he died in Delphi. Uh, he's said to have met with Periander of Corinth, where Plutarch reports him dining with the seven sages of Greece, sitting beside his friend Solon, whom he had met in Sardis. Plutarch writes that Aesop had come to Delphi on a diplomatic mission from, from King Croesus of Lydia, that he insulted the Delphians, was sentenced to death on a trumped-up charge of temple theft, and was thrown from a cliff. <laughs> uh, problems of chronological reconciliation, dating the death of Aesop and the reign of Croesus, led Aesop scholar Ben Edwin Perry in 1965 to conclude that Everything in the ancient testimony about Aesop that pertains to his associations with either Croesus or with any of the so-called seven wise men of Greece must be reckoned as literary fiction. And he dismissed Aesop's death in Delphi as legendary as well. Um, but subsequent research has established that um, a possible diplomatic mission for Croesus and a visit to Periander are consistent with the reported year of Aesop's death. So, you know, maybe. Okay. Um, yeah. There's a reference in the fables of Phaedrus to Aesop telling a fable in Athens during the reign of Pasistratus. I might be pronouncing that wrong, uh, which was decades after Aesop's date of death. So there's like some things where things are just not compatible, right? He can't, yeah. he can't have, he can't have died uh, when this one was reigning. And also when that one was reigning several decades later, uh, there is a, Biography, a highly fictional biography, now commonly called the Aesop Romance, um, also known as the Vita or the Life of Aesop, or the Book of Xanthus, the Philosopher and Aesop his Slave. Multiple versions of this work exist. The earliest known one is uh, probably composed in the first century CE, um, but the story may have circulated in different versions for centuries before it was committed to writing and preserved. And uh, certain elements can be shown to originate in the 4th century BCE, so like still a couple hundred years after his life. In the Aesop Romance, Aesop is a slave of Phrygian origin on the island of Samos, and he is extremely ugly. Uh, at first, he lacks the power of speech, but after showing kindness to a priestess of Isis, he is granted by the goddess not only speech, but a gift for clever storytelling which he uses alternately to assist and confound his master, Xanthus, embarrassing the philosopher in front of his students and even sleeping with his wife. Uh, yeah. After Ooh. interpreting a portent for the people of Samos, Aesop is given his freedom and acts as an emissary between the Samians and King Croesus. Later, he travels to the courts of Lysurgus of Babylon 
and Nectanabo of Egypt, both imaginary rulers. Uh, and the story ends with Aesop's journey to Delphi, where he angers the citizens by telling insulting fables, is sentenced to death, and after cursing the people of Delphi, is forced to jump to his death. Hmm. So it's anonymously authored, multiple versions exist, and begins with a vivid description of how ugly Aesop was. Uh, it describes him as of loathsome aspect, pot-bellied, misshapen of head, snub-nosed, swarthy, dwarfish, bandy-legged, short-armed, squint-eyed, liver-lipped, a portentous monstrosity. Fun. So, yeah. So, the the tradition that Aesop was ugly has persisted over the centuries. A much later tradition depicts Aesop as a black African um, from Ethiopia, uh, and there was this kind of likely false etymo- etymology where um, a Byzantine scholar of the 13th century said, oh, Aesop comes from Ethiopia <laughs> and thought that that was, you know, the source of his name. Um, that may have been the reason that people identified him as an African. But that also kind of caught the imagination um, and has been part of how Aesop has been depicted over the years. There were like a series of porcelain figurines in like a like a British porcelain factory. And they did like, you know, different figures from history in like, I don't know, the, the 18th century, maybe with, with Aesop depicted as African. Um, numerous illustrations over the years show him that way. Yeah, so there's there is this tradition also of depicting him as African and sometimes specifically from Ethiopia. If there were anything to it, the Jeopardy writers could write a clue about it because you know I'm they sure they love, already would have. You know they love to work Ethiopia into anything they can. Yep. There is um an elaborate celebration of Aesop and his families at uh, at Versailles. The Labyrinth of Versailles, a hedge maze constructed for Louis the Fourteenth, with thirty-nine fountains with lead sculptures depicting Aesop's fables. A statue of Aesop by Pierre Le Gros the Elder, uh, depicting Aesop as hunchbacked, uh, stood on a pedestal at the entrance. The labyrinth was built in sixteen, finished in sixteen seventy-seven, demolished in seventeen seventy-eight. But the statue of Aesop survives um, and can be seen in the vestibule of the Queen's Staircase at Versailles. Uh, while we're on depiction, uh, visual depictions of Aesop, uh, there's a portrait by Diego Velazquez of Aesop dated around 1640. Now in the collection of the Museo del, Museo del Prado, it is anachronistic. And uh, this depiction of Aesop displays no physical deformities. Whether he is handsome, I will leave to the viewer. Uh, so that's that's some uh, Aesop in visual arts. As a figure in literary works, we see him starting to appear pretty early as like, as like a, like a character. The fourth century BCE Athenian playwright Alexis uh, wrote the comedy Aesop. Only a few lines of that survive, but you know, it's interesting to see him emerging as a, like as a figure, like a, like a, like a character in literature so early. The third century BCE poet, Poseidipus of Pella wrote a narrative poem entitled Aesopia, uh, now lost, in which Aesop's fellow slave Rhodopis uh, was frequently mentioned. 
Um, and then the two of them as lovers would become a motif in many subsequent depictions of Aesop in, into the 20th century. Hmm. Uh, Aesop plays a fairly prominent part in Plutarch's conversation piece, The Banquet of the Seven Sages, um, which I touched on a minute ago. So jumping ahead a couple of millennia, um, in 1690, we have um, French playwright Edmé Borceau uh, writing Les Fables d'Aesop, uh, the, the Fables of Aesop, and its sequ- sequel, uh, Aesop at Court. Those are those are French plays, um, but then they are translated, uh, translated, reinterpreted by Sir John Van Brew for uh, his comedy Aesop, which premiered at the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane in London in 1697 and was frequently performed there for the next 20 years depicting a physically ugly Aesop acting as advisor to Laarchus, governor of Sisychus under King Croesus, and using his fables to solve romantic problems and quiet political unrest. 20th century saw a few different novels about Aesop, but they're not super remarkable, with the exception of um, George Hellman's Peacock's Feather, uh, which then was turned into a movie, Night in Paradise, starring Turhan Bey as Aesop. He becomes entangled with the intended bride of King Croesus, a Persian princess played by Merle Oberon, and makes uh, makes such a mess of it that he has to be rescued by the gods. That was a, a 1946 film. Mm. And in 1971, Bill Cosby starred as Aesop in the TV production Aesop's Fables, The Tortoise and the Hare. Hmm. So that's what we know. That's about Aesop as like a possible historical figure and like a little bit about portrayals of him through the centuries. It was not exhaustive. There are numerous portrayals of Aesop in many different like literary traditions and whatever. Um, but I, I pulled a few that I thought were, you know, notable for an English speaking audience um, or, you know, had had themes that come up a lot. But let's get into his fables a little bit. Um, So he may not have written his fables. The Aesop romance claims that he wrote them down and deposited them in the library of Croesus. Herodotus calls Aesop a writer of fables, and Aristophanes speaks of reading Aesop. But it's likely that Aesop's fables were, if if Aesop in fact existed, uh, collected by him, more, more so than composed. Collections of what are claimed to be Aesop's fables were transmitted by a series of authors writing in both Greek and Latin. Demetrius of Phalerum made what may have been the earliest uh, collection uh, contained in 10 books for the use of orators, uh, although that has since been lost. There was an edition in elegiac verse, author's name unknown and also lost. Um, And then Phaedrus, a freedman of Augustus, rendered the fables into Latin in the first century CE. At about the same time, Babrius turned the fables into Greek coliambics. So we have like these kind of collections of Aesop's fables getting like passed around, translated, like changed into different literary forms, like lost. It's it's a complicated process. But we have this kind of corpus of of fables that are kind of connected with uh, the name Aesop. Aesop's fables continued to be revised and translated through the centuries uh, with the addition of material from other cultures so that the body of fables known today bears minimal relation to the original set of Aesop's fables. There's been a surge in scholarly interest in the late 20th century uh, in Aesop's fables. 
Um, and some attempts have been made to kind of determine the nature and content of the very earliest fables, uh, which may be most closely linked to the historic Aesop, if indeed there was such a person, which, again, who knows? Who knows? Um, <laughs> there are fables and proverbs of Aesopic form existing in both ancient Sumer and Akkad as early as the third millennium BCE. Um, there's also overlap between Aesop's fables and the Indian tradition. Way back when I did a deep dive about Buddhism, I think I touched on the Jataka tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are over a dozen, uh, there are about a dozen tales that overlap between Aesop's fables, the Jataka tales, and the Hindu Panchatantra, which I'm not familiar with. But anyway, there's there's overlap in those traditions with debate over whether one tradition got the fables from another or whether they share some common source or influences. Oh, uh, Aesop's fables collectively are known as Aesopica, right? Uh, mm. King Arthur stuff is Arthuriana. Aesop stuff is Aesopica. Initially, the fables were um, intended for address to adults, covering religious, social, and political themes. They were also put to use as ethical guides. From the Renaissance onwards, they were particularly used for the education of children. But that's kind of a that's kind of a turn that the you know the use of Aesop's fables takes. Mm-hmm. With the revival of literary Latin in the Renaissance, authors began compiling collections of fables in which those traditionally by Aesop and those from other sources appeared side by side. A large printed collection of fables attributed to Aesop and translated into German. It's published around 1476. Um, It contained both Latin versions and German translations, and also included a translation uh, from the Greek of, I assume it's like the the Aesop romance, like the life of Aesop. Mm. Um, It says a a life of Aesop. I'm pretty sure that's, you know, we have multiple versions, but it's it's pretty much the one narrative. All of this is from uh, Heinrich Steinhowell as the person behind that. Translations or versions based on Steinhowell's book followed shortly in Italian, French, Czech, and English, and were many times reprinted. The English one is uh, by William Caxton, printed first on March 26th, 1484. So that's the first printed version of Aesop's Fables in English. Aesop's fables make their way all over the globe, though. I looked at lots of different sort of accounts of like Aesop's fables being, you know, translated, reinterpreted, published, you know, like, you know, uh, in all kinds of different languages and cultures. One that especially stood out for me, 47 fables were translated into the Nahuatl language in the late 16th century. Yep. And it was the work of a native translator adapting the stories to fit the Mexican environment, incorporating Aztec concepts and rituals. But there's lots of different similar sort of translation stories. In the 20th century, individual fables by Aesop began to be adapted to animated cartoons, most notably in France and the United States. Cartoonist Paul Terry began his own series called Aesop's Film Fables in 1921. This was taken over by Van Buren Studios in 1928. But perhaps more familiar to some of our listeners, in the early 1960s, animator Jay Ward created a television series of short cartoons called Aesop and Son, which were first aired as part of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Mm -hmm. 
I remember that. So yeah, that's, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot here. I think that the main thing to know is, you know, that this kind of corpus of tales, you know, connected with this possibly historical, possibly legendary figure has um, just traveled all over the globe, been, you know, reimagined, reinterpreted in, in so many different ways, but, you know, kept enough of their connection to be recognizable still as Aesop's fables. And, you know, I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what I've got. We could have descended way into minutia, but sure. <laughs> hopefully I found, <laughs> hopefully I found some, some interesting stuff and kind of, I don't know, gave a, gave a little bit of a sense of, you know, sort of where this comes from and, you know, sort of how it, how it plays out over the centuries. Yeah. Yeah. So, are you ready for a quiz? Of course I am. I figured you probably were. Um, so it's a it's an Aesop's Fables quiz. I found six fables and wrote questions with some connection to them. Sometimes more, sometimes less. So question one. The tortoise and the hare teaches us that slow and steady wins the race. Sculptor Nancy Schoen's sculpture based on the fable was made in 1996 and placed in Copley Square to commemorate the centenary of what foot race? Annual foot race, maybe I should say. Okay. Oh, okay. This is leading me down a... 1996. 1896 is also the first modern Olympics, but I don't think that's what it is. No. Because I'm trying to remember where Copley Copley Square is. (laughs) No, that's fine. I... think it's in Boston, so I'm going to say the Boston Marathon. The Boston Marathon is correct. Yeah. Nice. Yes. So, um, I mean, I think that it's charming, right? Um, yeah, Copley Square is where the finish line of the Boston Marathon is. So, you know, I think the tortoise and the hare is is fitting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Nice. You are at 10 points. And question two. The lion and the mouse... Reminds us that there is no being so small that it cannot help a greater. The 2009 picture book by the same name retells the fable and won its illustrator, Jerry Pinckney, what award, which is given to each year's most distinguished American picture book for children. There is the part of my brain that's like, don't mix these up. Mm -hmm. Because that would be really embarrassing, especially on this particular podcast. And I believe that's the Caldecott? It is the Caldecott. Okay. Uh, I was like, I'm I'm pretty sure it's the Caldecott, but what if you're what if you're transposing those names? Yeah. Um no, it's the it's the Caldecott. Uh Newberry mm-hmm. is for you know, right. for the like for the, the for the this, book, for the yeah. you know, the writing. Caldecott is for the picture book, but you know, it tends to be for the illustrations. Um right. and Jerry Pinkney was um, the first African American to win the Caldecott Medal with his uh, with that book. All right, so you are at twenty points. And question three: A fable about the virtues of hard work, in which one creature prepares for winter, while the other spends the summer making merry, but then is reduced to begging the first for sustenance, features what two kinds of creatures? The industrious one is a member of family Formicidae, while the slacker is a member of the order Orthoptera and suborder 
Kylifera. Uh, those are the ant and the grasshopper. They are the ant and the grasshopper. That is correct. I decided it was maybe a little too much of a deep cut, but there have been there have been some uh, versions of the ant and the grasshopper, some literary works inspired by the ant and the grasshopper, including apparently a novel by um, W. Somerset Mom, where the you know kind of uh, hedonist brother, the grasshopper figure, ends up marrying a wealthy heiress to the hmm. to the industrious brother's great chagrin. Huh. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So I, I figured I figured that um it it would be good to take the take one of these questions in a science direction. But, you know, if anybody ever wants to go down a, a little bit of a rabbit hole um about literature inspired by the ant and the grasshopper, there are some things to find there. All right. You're at thirty points. Perfect so far. Question number four. The ass in lion's skin is the story of a donkey who puts on a lion's skin to terrify his fellow creatures. It works until he tries to frighten a fox who recognizes the donkey's bray. A donkey dressed in lion's skin, likely inspired by this fable, has a central role in what children's fantasy novel, the seventh and final in its series, published in 1956? Uh, that is The Last Battle. It is. I did a whole deep dive on that one. You did. Yeah. Did. <laughs> um, listeners, if you have not, if you're not, if you're not familiar, I've got a whole deep dive on that one. So you can go find it. All right. Question number five. The crow and the pitcher has had morals attached to it like necessity is the mother of invention and where there's a will, there's a way. I didn't know this one. So uh, the fable tells of a thirsty crow who comes upon a pitcher of water but can't reach the water's surface and isn't strong enough to tip the pitcher over. What does the crow do? 21st century ornithologists have observed this behavior in corvids in studies including using the Aesop's fable paradigm to investigate causal understanding of water displacement in New Caledonian crows. Um, I, I think... If I recall, the crow like drops pebbles in. That is correct. Until it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The crow drops pebbles into the pitcher uh, to raise the water level, um, and and crows do in fact do that. Which, whoa, crows um, are so are too smart. They are too smart. Uh, uncomfortably smart. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I um when when I found the scientific paper that was titled using the Aesop's fable paradigm, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, okay, we're definitely using that one in the quiz. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. That's Um, a cool fact. Yeah. All right. You're at 50 points out of 50. um, And we're going to call this last category sci-fi villains. Hmm. Going through the list of sci-fi villains in my head. I I mean, I'm going to go for 50. I feel I feel well prepared for this category. Okay, all right. So for a hundred points, um, and I and I deviated a little bit from the theme here. There are numerous tales that are often misattributed to Aesopica. I'm not going to say they're misattributed to Aesop because we're not totally sure that he was a person. But there right. are there are numerous tales that are often misattributed to Aesopica, including the Scorpion and the Frog. That fable inspired the title 
of a two-part episode of Star Trek Voyager. In which the crew of the Voyager undertake a temporary alliance with what alien group? Cybernetic organisms linked in a hive mind. Oh, that, the clue The clue was good. I believe that is the Borg. That is the Borg. The yes. Borg. Yes. So, um, you know, it's a it's a, you know, a to be continued. Uh, mm-hmm. So in the first one. Chakotay, the um, like first mate, whatever, tries to warn the captain using the tail of the scorpion and the frog. Right, you right. knew you knew I was a scorpion. Yeah, uh, yeah. Although, like, they do in fact undertake this alliance, and then I think Captain Janeway is incapacitated, incapacitated, and like Chakotay makes plans to like abandon their like borg hostages on a hostile planet at some point like so like who's i don't know who's the real scorpion here i don't know i I guess i should not be on the borg side regardless um but this is this this two-part episode is um what brings seven of nine into Mm, the series into the the series yeah um yeah that's how that's how she enters as a character Mm. um but hey a hundred points yes it's been a while since I've had triple digits. Yeah, perfect score. I mean, we sometimes have like the the ten the ten bonus points for for guessing the deep dive topic, but yeah, no, that's yeah. I, that's a perfect score. So congratulations. Thank you. I very You're much welcome. enjoyed that. Yeah. Every week or every you know time that I do a deep dive, I'm like, oh, this will this will be a nice manageable topic. <laughs> it almost never is. Um, but yeah, no, it was a it was a fun one to, to prep and it was a fun quiz to prep. Um, so thank you for uh, for doing this with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review. Um, oh, I found a like the kindest review from it was like back in May and I think that I stopped looking as we were kind of closing out the Jeopardy season. Mm. And so I just went back and looked to see if there were new reviews. And there is such a kind review, and I really appreciated it. So um, thank you especially to whoever left that one. And um, all y'all go go leave reviews, if you would. Um, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables One. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.